Hello and welcome to Civil War Weekly, the podcast that answers the question, what happened this week in the American Civil War? I'm your host, Tim Patrick, and this is episode 49, February 21st to February 27th, 1862. Last week, we spent the entire time along the Cumberland River in Tennessee fighting the Battle of Fort Donelson. This week, we will jump around a little bit. Let's start in Richmond with the official inauguration of Jefferson Davis. We will head out to New Mexico to fight the first major battle in that theater of the war. Then we will check in on what is happening in Arkansas and Tennessee and the gains the Union Army is seeing in those theaters. Just as a quick note before we get started, the Patreon episode about the movie review for the Santa Fe Trail should be posted as of the dropping of this episode, so that's going to be on the Patreon feed. Uh, once again, that's going to be the first Errol Fun movie that I'll be doing. also has actor Ronald Reagan in it, which is uh, interesting as well. So if you want to hear the synopsis and the review of that movie, then go ahead and check that out on the Patreon. On February 22nd, 1862, Jefferson Davis would give his second inaugural address. Why did he give his second address, you might ask? Well, because Jefferson was only the provisional president throughout 1861. More effort would be put into the second address as the first was pretty hastily written the night before in Montgomery, Alabama. If you recall, Davis had been at home when he was informed he had been elected the first Confederate president. February 22nd showed rain, but the events would not be canceled. No, it was important to Davis that this address be given on the 22nd because it was Washington's birthday. This gives us a good idea of the mindset behind Davis and the Confederacy. This was a second revolution against the tyranny of the federal government. In fact, the speech highlighted the suspension of habeas corpus by Lincoln as further encroachment into the rights of the people. The experiment instituted by our revolutionary fathers of a voluntary union of sovereign states for purposes specified in a solemn compact had been perverted by those who, feeling power and forgetting right, were determined to respect no law but their own will. It's a direct quote from Davis's speech. Ironically, though, Jefferson would suspend habeas corpus as well under the same reasons given by the Lincoln administration for the general safety of the public. It should be noted that slavery was not mentioned in the speech either. Now we need to set up the campaign into northern Arkansas in 1862 this week. Just as a note for the strategic situation in the area, Sterling Price was still operating in southwestern Missouri in and around Springfield. David Hunter had taken over briefly in the department before Halleck and undid the gains made by the Pathfinder 
previous in late 1861. Halleck was ready to move out, much in the same way he had dispatched Grant into Tennessee. Price was sitting with his militia state guard, ready to move in and raid Missouri, if not dealt with. Besides the raiding factor, remember Missouri was still a border state, and the success and presence of Price might result in support from the civilians in terms of supplies and manpower. It was late 1861 where recruiting expeditions would be launched deeper into the state. Therefore, any move into Arkansas or beyond would come with this caveat. The situation was clear. Price had to go. The goal was not simply to control the territory. The goal would be destruction of the Missouri State Guard. A 12,000-man army of the Southwest was assembled to accomplish this task. At its head would be Samuel Curtis. Curtis had briefly attended West Point before resigning a year after graduation, serving in a variety of professions. During the war with Mexico, he had become a military governor of the captured territory, his competence noted by Winfield Scott. Scott would recommend Curtis for command, at the time the 56-year-old serving as a Republican congressman from his adoptive state of Iowa. Curtis had actually resigned from Congress to raise a volunteer regiment for the cause. His style was often considered old-fashioned, being very Victorian, and described by his men as a fine old man. Curtis, though, would prove himself to be a very capable field commander. He had been in St. Louis prior to his appointment, doing his best to navigate the chaos under the previous department commander. Almost immediately, there would be conflict for Curtis. Franz Siegel was still hanging around and thought it was his responsibility to lead the Union forces against Price. After Curtis was announced, he would put in his resignation. Halleck would talk the German immigrant off the ledge. But why would he do that? Siegel had proven so-so in his campaign so far. Despite this, he had convinced Halleck, among others, that he was instrumental to the continued support of the Germans in the Union Army. The Army of the Southwest was unique in that it had the largest percentage of ethnic Germans during the war. Two whole divisions, one under the command of Peter Osterhaus and the other under Hungarian Aspa, would be under the loose control of Siegel. Two more divisions under Jefferson C. Davis and Carr would round out the force as a whole. If Curtis was going to fulfill his goal of taking out Price, he would also need someone handling his supply chain. Placed in this role would be Captain Phil Sheridan. So now is as good a time as any to introduce Sheridan. Philip Sheridan was born originally in New York, but moved to Ohio at a very young age. He would attend West Point, but actually be suspended for a year for an altercation with a fellow classmate and future Civil War General William Terrell. When he finally returned, Sheridan would finish in the bottom third of his class. Afterwards, he would serve on the frontier until the outbreak of the war between the states. 
Sheridan will see a wild rise through the ranks, much in the same way we have already talked about James McPherson and John Bell Hood. Eventually, he'll move on from his quartermaster duties to command a regiment of Michigan Cavalry. Afterwards, he'll move to Infantry Command, eventually rising to the rank of Major General. At the conclusion of the war, Sheridan will remain in the Army, actually performing poorly, commanding as a military governor of Texas and Louisiana. Little Phil would also spend time in action against the Plains Indians. Sheridan would be in charge of the relief effort during the Great Chicago Fire, as well as responsible for the creation of Yellowstone National Park. He will eventually become the overall commander of the U.S. Army after Sherman until his death in 1888. If there are main pillars of the great Union generals, we can at least conclude Sheridan is up there with Grant and Sherman. The other pillars holding up the Union war effort are not clear. Maybe we could settle for a triangular structure, perhaps. We will see as we continue who maybe deserves a fourth spot. Just know that Philip Sheridan will be a name we are going to see a good bit of moving forward. In 1862, Sheridan's work would be cut out for him. Southern Missouri had been picked of potential foraging, as had northern Arkansas. Arkansas at the time was the least populated and developed of the Confederate states. Any roads to be had were not designed for travel by large armies. In addition, this would be a winter campaign. Reason being was that it would catch Price and the rest of the Confederates off guard. Road conditions would therefore play a large factor. As Curtis moved his army towards Springfield, Price would send for potential help from the Confederate forces in Arkansas. Wilson's Creek had seen his state guard combined with Ben McCullough, although relations between the two commanders had soured. The old Texan ranger, McCullough, was not in Arkansas at the time, having traveled to Richmond. His subordinates, Louis Hebert and James McIntosh, would not move without approval from their superior. Price would withdraw toward the Arkansas border, losing Springfield to the advancing Federals. The city would not fall for the remainder of the war. In fact, as Price and his men slipped away, there would never be a legitimate threat to retake the state from the southern perspective. While February 14th would see the withdrawal, Price would inexplicably not inform the Confederate forces that the Federals were not stopping, but rather continuing their pursuit. This gave very little time in terms of setting of a proper defense for invasion. Skirmishing had been conducted as the State Guard continued to retreat, leaving supplies and those who had fallen out in the advance of their enemy. At one point, it may have been possible for Siegel to cut off the retreating price, but whether the German general was insubordinate or did not understand his orders, the opportunity lapsed. February 16th into the 17th would see the State Guard under Price move out of Missouri. At a place called Dunnigan's Farm, the Confederate forces laid out against the advancing Union troops to stop their advance as they crossed into the new state. On February 17, 1862, a sharp fight, seeing the Union cavalry lose many horses, resulted in 13 killed on the Union side, 
and an estimated 26 killed on the Confederate side. Eventually, Ben McCullough would return, but little could be done but continue the withdrawal of their forces further south. Forced to abandon Fayetteville, the proper equipment for transporting the supplies there had not been brought up. Therefore, the rebel general turned over what there was to the men of the army. Eventually, this did spill over into general looting of the city, something not controlled by McCullough to be critical. Curtis had stopped his advance in fear of a Confederate counterattack. His forward movement after Price had turned into a very different animal, transforming from a chase to an invasion. Union cavalry would move into Fayetteville and briefly occupy the town between February 22nd and 26th before retreating. The last thing we need to mention is the new Confederate commander of the newly dubbed Army of the West. His name was Earl Van Dorn. Command to the Army in Arkansas was originally offered to Virginian Henry Heath, as well as Braxton Bragg. Both would decline the appointment, though. Van Dorn was the third choice, and much like the others, shared one key thing in common with the other two, and that was Jefferson Davis considered him a trusted friend. The new commanding general had grown up not far from Davis. Prior to the Civil War, Van Dorn had served in the Army with distinction during the Mexican-American War, as well as on the frontier. Very much a man of action, Van Dorn would wish to push on from his base in northeast Arkansas in an effort to capture St. Louis. When news of the Federals advancing under Curtis, Van Dorn would rush to take over despite falling ill. This would resolve the issue of who between Price and McCullough would take command. Aggressive and thirsting for a strike at the Yankees, combined with a rare case of numerical superiority, will lead to action in the Trans-Mississippi in two weeks' time. Let's head over to New Mexico now. Jumping around, we will rewind back to February 20th and 21st to fight the Battle of Valverde. As we have discussed, to support the Confederate invasion of New Mexico, Henry Hopkins Sibley had the idea that the Texas Volunteers would capture Federal supplies at their various forts. One such fort that was a key target would be Fort Craig, positioned along the Rio Grande, relatively 160 miles north of El Paso. In February of 1862, the invaders started to pressure this position, wanting a quick resolution before moving on to Albuquerque and Santa Fe. For several days around February 16th, Sibley would deploy his men in a line of battle before Fort Craig, hoping that Canby would move his Union forces out to meet him. But Canby did not take the bait. The armies were relatively even in number. Sibley and the Texas Brigade were around 2,500 strong, made up mostly of Texas men and Arizona Rangers. They were armed primarily with shotguns and pistols as opposed to the longer range weapons, those they would receive after capture, they hoped. Canby had a mismatched army, numbers a little less than 3,000. He had U.S. Army regulars, 
U.S. Cavalry, New Mexican Volunteers, and one unit of volunteers from Colorado. As we have already mentioned, the first New Mexico volunteers were under the command of the famous Kit Carson. Sibley decided to change tactics and move his men to the eastern bank of the Rio Grande, and potentially cut off communication and resupply to Fort Craig at a ford known as Valverde. On February 20th, Colonel Green of the 5th Mounted Texas Cavalry would move to place some artillery on a high ground above the fort, but was unable to do so. There was a plan set forth by Union troops to unleash mules laden with explosives into the Confederate camp, but this backfired when the mules did not go where they intended and detonated, accomplishing the scattering of some of the rebel mules, which would actually prove important for the Confederate army and supply. If you're sitting there thinking, no way this is true, I actually read into it a couple of different times. I suppose you can't knock the creativity at least, and I am not condoning mule murder, but I do think it would be funny if you were the guy who released the mules, only to have them run a little bit and walk back toward where you were. Probably not something you'd want to see as the uh, explosives expert, shall we say, for this mule venture. This is going to be a common theme, though, actually, during the Civil War, and something I do want to mention is that there are several times where mules are used instead of horses. But the problem with that is that mules, in case you were not aware, sort of go to the beat of their own drum. They're incredibly headstrong, so they're not always the best animal for cavalry, and actually there is a famous incident that we will get into here a little bit later where Nathan Bedford Forrest is essentially pegged against a Union cavalry force that are mounted on mules specifically, so it doesn't really work out very well for them as opposed to the horse-mounted Confederate cavalry, but it's interesting nonetheless to see this sort of creativity for terrain that is often dubbed where a more durable animal is necessary. So it, it is creative, but uh, also doesn't really work out the way anybody wants it to. February 21st would see the Confederates approach the ford, but to their surprise, Canby had shifted his men to meet them there. Some of the Union forces had crossed and deployed on the eastern side. Pyron's Rangers, who had been formerly Baylor's men, if you recall from the episodes on his move to create Confederate Arizona, would be the first to make contact with the Union Cavalry. Union Cavalry had set up a beachhead on the eastern bank of the river and would contest the area hotly, with both sides moving artillery into place and exchanging fire from covered positions. We do have a quote to illustrate that firefight. And this is from a sergeant in the Texas Cavalry. The guns of Teal's battery, with Captain Teal himself, came thundering down, and in a moment had taken position directly in front of us and upon the level of the bottom, and commenced firing directly at the infantry and artillery across the river. In a moment, the enemy had changed their battery, and it began to deploy with its whole force upon Teal's battery, and then we began to feel convinced 
that we were in a hot place indeed. Shell and round shot and many bullets came whistling in showers over our heads. Bombs burst just behind and before, and trees were shattered and limbs began to fall. A horse or two shot, and presently they brought back one of Teal's artillerymen, severely wounded. Sibley would arrive and assess that his situation would require his men to fall back, as there was a large emphasis from the Union on pressuring his left. Rebels would take cover in an old dry riverbed, a good defensive position. Canby had arrived with more men from Fort Craig at this time. Kit Carson's 1st New Mexico Volunteers and McRae's U.S. Battery were present on the field. Canby had left behind 1,000 men at Craig to deal with a few hundred Texans who were positioned across the river from the fort. Into the afternoon, both sides would exchange fire. Colonel Green would take charge of the Confederate forces as General Sibley was taken ill and laying in an ambulance, which is a polite way of saying he was intoxicated and unable to command. A charge would be conducted by a unit of Texas Lancers on what appeared to be New Mexican infantry. It was seen as an easy score there being the notion that New Mexican volunteers were of inferior quality. This unit was actually the Colorado Volunteers under Theodore Dodd. Texas Lancers would take heavy casualties before withdrawing, only wounding one Colorado soldier. An account is given to us by the Union. On came the enemy, not a word in our ranks. All were still but our brave little captain who gave his commands in so cool and determined a manner as to make all breathe easier and every nerve become more steady. All were anxious for the deadly conflict. Our captain, stepping in front, said, Steady there, my brave mountaineers. Waste not a single shot. Do not let your passions run off with your judgment. Steady, men, steady. Do not fire till I command. Not a sound in our ranks. I could hear my own heart beat. On came the enemy, with their lances poised in the air, ready for conflict. Oh, what suspense. They are now within forty yards of us. Our captain is in front, gazing at the enemy, and then at us, as if calculating the result of the conflict. Steady, men. Guns to face, but wait for the command to fire. Every eye on those lancers. Our captain now commands fire. We sent forth a volley, which sent many brave Texans to bite the dust. Many horses were riderless. The boys waited until they got within 40 yards of us when they took deliberate aim, and it was fun to see the Texans fall. The enemy wavered for a few moments, precious moments they were to us. We were again loaded when they got to us, and then we gave them the buck and ball. After the second volley, there were but a few of them left, but one of them got away. The others were shot, and one bayoneted. George Simpson ran his bayonet through one of them, and shot the top of his head off. They appeared bewildered, did not appear to know how or what to do. They were soon butchered. I cannot call it else by the bayonet. This is a great illustration of the, first of all, it's a little bit uh, graphic, I would say, this description, and this is from uh, a member of Theodore Dodd's men, 
uh, Alonzo Ickes. And it does do a great job of illustrating, you know, why cavalry is not effective against infantry during the Civil War. Cavalry charges against infantry is a very Napoleonic way of thinking, right? And especially as Lancers, there's not really a whole lot of Lancer units during the war. And this is most likely the first and last Lancer charge of the war. Sappens out here in New Mexico, so not even does it happen in the East or some of the other bigger theaters. Also, like, in this description as well, he mentions how they are loading buck and ball. And remember, buck and ball, it's a smoothbore weapon, but it does effectively act as a kind of shotgun, right? It has a bunch of mini balls and one, one big one, some mini balls in there as well. And it is definitely the kind of weapon that you want against a massed cavalry charge. And you can hear from the quote how just deadly efficient it is against these horsemen. Camby will get an idea later in the afternoon that to turn the tide, he will make a swing with a pivot point on his left, anchored by McRae's battery. The Union center and right would move and flank the rebels, thus winning the day. Carson's men, among others, would undertake this move, but while advancing, were eventually told to retire. This was because Colonel Green of the Confederates had placed a well-timed charge at the pivot point itself. The rebels were motivated to get to the river so that they could drink, as their water supply was running low. As a note, the battle was actually fought in colder conditions, with reports of light snowfall, but this did little to actually quench the thirst of the Confederates, who remember their supplies are running pretty low, they're banking on capturing Fort Craig and getting enough supplies, whether that's food or water, to sustain them. As a result of the charge, McRae's battery was virtually wiped out. We have an account from the same Colorado private, Alonzo Ickes. At 4 p.m., they emerged from the ravine suddenly and made a charge upon our batteries, or rather sections of batteries. Lockridge, with 1,500 men, charged our section of six small guns supported by 250 men. The Mexicans ran at the first sight of the enemy without firing a shot and left us to keep or let the battery go up. Up it went. Our batterymen stood their ground, firing as fast as possible. At every shot, the enemy ranks would be open, but they were soon filled by other men. We gave them the balls as fast as possible. Our battery boys played the canister into the enemy, and at every shot, you could see their ranks open and pieces of men flying through the air. Colonel Camby, who came on the field at 3 p.m., was near us, cheering the men, but it was no avail. They were six to our one, and we could not retreat with the battery. They were on and around it when one of the battery boys jumped upon a magazine, which stood at the side of the guns, drew his pistol, and cried, Victory or death, fired his pistol into the ammunition. One lad report, and all was over, with that brave boy and many of the enemy who were crowded around the magazine. At this time, we were ordered to retreat. We crossed the Rio under a shower of shot from the enemy shotguns and Navy pistols. Canby was forced to withdraw. His men would limp back to Fort Craig, leaving the field to the Confederates. 
including those missing, who most likely broke and deserted, the Union had a 16% casualty rate. Sibley's brigade had suffered heavy losses for the smaller-sized force. Overall, this was not quite the scale of the battles in the East, or even in Tennessee, or even in the Trans-Mississippi, as we're going to see pretty soon in Pea Ridge. But, there were still 187 Confederate casualties, as opposed to around 430 Union casualties. Now, I know that sounds like the Confederates won a pretty big victory, but these 170 casualties are not going to be replaced, whereas the Union have reinforcements on the way. I think the other really important note here, and maybe you've caught it, is that after this action, the Confederates don't capture Fort Craig, which of course is their objective. The Federals are going to move farther north, with the Confederates close to their heels, actually bypassing the fort. We're going to continue the campaign and the relative conclusion in a few weeks' time. Lastly, I do need to mention that on February 25th, Congress will pass the Legal Tender Act. Now what, you may be asking, is the Legal Tender Act? Well, this would allow for the use of paper notes to pay government bills, as opposed to the previous use of gold and silver. $150 million was printed, not backed by gold or silver, in an attempt to pay for the increasingly expensive war. Using the new greenbacks would lead to worries by bankers and financial experts that the system would collapse. Since the notes were legal tender, they would have to be accepted. In the words of the Act, payment of all taxes, internal duties, excises, debts, and demands of every kind due to the United States, except duties on imports, and of all claims and demands, and shall also be lawful money and legal tender and payment of all debt, public and private, within the United States. There would be taxes to help combat inflation. By the end of the war, $500 million would be printed, which is the equivalent to $7 billion in today's money. Let's wrap it up right there for now. When I start talking economics, you know we should probably bring things to a conclusion, and this sentiment would most likely be agreed upon by both my micro and macro economics professors. This week, we had a bit of a packed schedule. We were able to set the table for the campaign into Arkansas very nicely. The Legal Tender Act was passed, and we also had the first larger-scale battle in New Mexico in Valverde. Next week, we're heading out to Missouri, and the last foothold that the Confederates have in that state in Island Number 10. If you like what you hear, please make sure to leave a review. Posted in the description should be a link to the website, Patreon, as well as Venmo information. Support for the general upkeep of the show is greatly appreciated. And do make sure to check out the Patreon feed once again. Plug in here at the end, Santa Fe Trail, Errol Flynn movie. It's got Ronald Reagan in it. I'm sure you want to hear about that. Once again, feedback is welcome. Questions, comments, concerns. The email is cwweeklypod at gmail.com. 
Thank you all so much for listening and have a great week.